Hello. This is Peter Jacoby for Profiles. In the studio today is Jeanette Fischel, a premier practitioner and teacher of the organ. She is chair of the organ department at Indiana University's Jacobs School. She's an active performer, and she is mad for Johann Sebastian Bach. Of all of these, we will speak during the hour that follows. Welcome, Jeanette Fischel. Thank you, Peter. You teach classes. I guess you have a studio of students. You perform, for which you must practice. You administer. You listen to auditions. You arrange and compose. You write and publish. I mean, how do you do all this? You (laughs) prioritize or what? Well, yes. I mean, one has to live a very disciplined life when you take on a lot of projects. But it has to be said that I don't really have a lot of dinner parties. And uh, I have to get up very early in the morning to weed my garden. So in other words, you know, there are a lot of aspects of quote unquote normal life that I don't bother too much with because I'm really uh, so devoted to what I do and it feeds me in a way that nothing else quite does. So I somehow find time to to do those things. Although I don't juggle all the balls all the time. You know, there are periods when I um, will turn attention towards certain projects and, and I'm just using the summer to finish up some articles that have been way on the back, back burner. So, you know, like every busy academic, I somehow you find the time to do what's most important. Now, you you have to keep your fingers and your feet nimble mm. at the organ. Uh, that must take considerable dedication. Well, I always describe it to students when they're sort of coming to terms with just the amount of time one has to put in to be, you know, a serious musician on any instrument. And I just say, you know, basically, you're like an Olympic athlete. There's a certain amount of getting to the instrument every day that you have to do just to keep the fingers nimble and um, to make sure that, you know, the, the small muscle movements are are there. It has to be said that, you know, over time you build that technical bedrock. And, um, you know, there are periods when, you know, for whatever reason, you don't get the time you want. But certainly taking on some big projects, like you alluded to the Bach project I'm doing now, there just can be very few days in my year when I'm not practicing. And uh, thankfully, I really love doing that. So how much practicing would you do during a period like that? Well, I mean, in the summer, it's wonderful when I'm home. I can pretty much block out my whole day. Uh, Through the year, oh, there's some really difficult days when I'm lucky to get two hours. But a bad day would maybe be two hours, and a good day might be five hours. And in the weekend, it might be some eight-hour days. That's really because of the the, the pressure I have right now to learn so much new music all the time. When you have a few programs that you're taking and you're pretty much living with those programs all year, you know, you can you can probably get by without, without so many eight-hour days. Now, to take up the violin, one understands that, or a pianist, a, a piano, or a guitar, or a clarinet, or a trumpet, but an organ. Mm-hmm. How does a person come to an organ as a chosen instrument. Mm. Maybe we need to go back into into your past a little. Delve back into the past. I have a pretty typical past for a lot of organists. It must be said this isn't everybody's journey, but my journey begins pretty typically in that I grew up in a family. uh, I have three sisters, and my mother um, wanted all of us to have piano, so we all started piano. 
at five. And I, from the beginning, it was clear I was the sister who was really going to take to the instrument uh, in a big way. And, you know, when I was five to probably nine, I, I was determined I was going to be a concert pianist. That was my love. And I worked very hard. Um, but then mother also wanted one of us to play the organ. And I grew up in the church. I grew up uh, hearing the organ. In fact, I th- my first memory that I can access is in church and looking up at the arch and seeing the facade of the pipe organ in my church. So I I think I was kind of a born church lady. And where was it? It was in Rushville, Indiana, um, uh, St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And it was a very powerful memory. And my my piano teacher at the time was also the church organist. So, you know, I came to the organ. uh, My mother encouraged it, but I also was fascinated by this beautiful piece of art that also made these profound, wonderful sounds. And so when I started the organ, I really never looked back. And, and then I, I continued piano. And in fact, through through my time at IU, I was a student of Frida Kaufman here, George Kaufman's uh, wife. But I knew from the time I started the organ that that's the star I wanted to hitch my wagon to. And I, I think that organists just are um, born. I think there's something inside of us that responds to this on one hand, this huge machine um, that also can make, can whisper and can roar. And of course, I even on the piano, I can look back and think I really gravitated towards certain repertoire that was very organistic. And I loved Bach. I loved the WTC. And I loved playing counterpoint on the piano, in addition to playing, you know, Chopin and Beethoven and Gershwin and all of that. But I really responded to, to counterpoint. And, of course, the organ is, we think, a supreme contrapuntalist. And that whole idea of figuring out the labyrinth of the music just appealed to me um, on a certain um, intellectual level. Speak to that some more, the labyrinth. Counterpoint, of, of course, is, is really defined by, you know, the opposition of and marriage of, of separate lines. And it can be what's confusing about music. And I guess what appe- what's always appealed to me is the idea that uh, the challenge of making sense of that opposition so that somehow it's not so much a battle as a dialogue and a conversation. Um, because the organ is an instrument where you're using your whole body. I mean, it's a whole, it's a con- full body contact sport. You're using both hands and both feet and sometimes playing an instrument with many, many different manuals. So you have a lot of different colors available to you, and you have you can play in many, many parts. Um, it is, for that reason, a supremely uh, wonderful vehicle for this dialogue, this union and uh, conversation be- of opposites. And, um, and as an organist, one spends a lifetime in refining the art of how to make that intelligible and how to make that clear so that all the audience is aware of is the the intricacy and the sophistication of that dialogue. They're not hearing the battle. They're hearing the music. Of course, it takes a lifetime of practice. That's why I go in on the weekends and practice eight hours a day because it really, in order to do that, it means that you have to have the, the absolutely maximum amount of control of the smallest muscle groups in your body and because it all has to do with touch and 
length of the note, and it's all very, very uh, subtle stuff, technically. You spend a lifetime mastering it. But when you when you encounter the work of the master, for example, J.S. Bach, you realize that it's a never-ending source of intellectual and musical stimulation, and it's just so worth every second you spend coming to terms with it. And you also have to be physically in shape, don't you? <laughs> it does help, yes. Uh, you know, people always say after I play a recital, well, aren't you exhausted? Well, you know, if you're playing the right way, you don't physically get exhausted. But there are certain instruments that are very heavy, for example, um, and they can actually take quite a bit of arm weight. But it's more of a, a case of if you develop a good technique, um, you avoid back problems, you avoid arm problems. But to be quite honest, being an organist means you do sit down a lot. And so I find it necessary to get my exercise off the bench. And um, being fit does ne- does help in every level, mentally, physically. Isn't there a problem sometimes for organists of just gaining access to the instrument? Yes. You know, we're there's a reason why the organ is, is this kind of misunderstood and mysterious instrument in, of all the instruments. It's not something people study and you don't play it in band. Um, most orchestras call in an, an organist every once in a while when there's an organ part. We tend to be sort of off on our own. And um, that's why it really helps um, if you're someone who's happy uh, keeping your own company because being an organist can be kind of a lonely thing. Um, I find my students who need constant social interaction have a hard time literally being an organist because so much of our work is alone in a room, small room. And the collaborative work you do, which is very, very important in the form of, usually in the form of accompanying a choir, for example, uh, sometimes chamber music, um, is is probably something that, that doesn't happen so early in the process. It happens after you've sort of become sort of a form musician. So there, there are many years that you spend alone. Um, it's probably why it, it attracts a certain person, someone who who's, can can really be happy with that. Most students of the organ have probably grown up with some kind of relationship with a with a church or a synagogue that allows them to come in and use the instrument. When I was first starting, um, my church didn't quite want to give me a key, yeah. but there was an old trap door in the ground that used to be where they shoveled the coal. And they told me how to get in through there. So I would actually go down this coal chute to get into the church to practice, if you can believe it. And once I proved that I was very serious, my parents bought an instrument so I could practice at home. <laughs> but it is true that it's um, it often takes quite a bit of um, of negotiation. And sometimes a, a little money has to cross uh, between hands to gain access to an instrument. There is a lot of work that we do on the piano, however, I have to say. A great organist always needs to uh, remain a student of the piano because there just are certain uh, – well, first of all, the weight of the piano key can is really the lie detector. Um, if you're playing an electric action instrument, not an electric organ, but electric action pipe organ, which is a, quite a forgiving, quite an easy action to play, it's very difficult to know just – what the muscles are doing in your hands. So it's very important to keep going back to the piano. And so you can, and you can actually practice quite a bit of your music on the piano. But there's no getting around the fact that access to an instrument is important. And of course, we're lucky here in Bloomington because there are, we at the school, we have um, 
facilities that uh, seem to meet our needs. Well, let's turn to some music. Oh, good. You brought several selections with you. And one of them, you say, is your own composition. It is. Uh, and it's a setting of, of Psalm 139. Right. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Well, I chose this because as I was thinking about um, profile and thinking about uh, the music that sort of represents my journey as a musician and how I got here. A big part of who I am is, is a church musician. I grew up, obviously, um, in that tradition. And when I had my job previous to this, I was professor at East Carolina University. And I found myself in a little Episcopal church as the organist choir master. And that little Episcopal church, over the course of 19 years, doubled in size. Um, the choir became quite a wonderful ensemble. And uh, we built a new space, and I got a wonderful Fisk organ, actually, very similar to Mady. And uh, I found myself for many years in this town really so excited and turned on by my work as a choral director. Um, And before the Fisk organ uh, arrived, I found for several years that my choir was actually the most beautiful musical instrument I had at my disposal. And, you know, I'm really grateful that one of the things I've been taught through the years is just to make the most of the situation you find yourself in. And as I got more and more interested in choral conducting and uh, and really exploring the intersection between art and my faith, I, I found that my work at the church took on so much importance in my life musically, spiritually, and otherwise. And so I got very excited as a musician. I would say that I almost became as interested in in my work there as a choir director as I was as an organist. So anyway, I got inspired to compose. I've always composed. I've always improvised. But I found with this choir that uh, the needs of the liturgy inspired me to compose in a way that we can see in history, you know, Gebrauchmusik. If you don't have a nice setting of Psalm 139 at your disposal, write one. And I basically got inspired to write this setting. I've dedicated it to my father because the psalm says so much about who he was and and my relationship with him. He was a very private person and uh, introspective man. And this psalm really talks about the fact that uh, we are truly known by God. So this setting is a, a psalm setting that um, is composed for two soloists, baritone and soprano, with choir, organ, and also you'll hear a refrain throughout, and this refrain can be sung by the congregation. So it's squarely in the mold of responsorial uh, congregational psalmody, but it really takes on quite a bit of uh, of uh, sophistication with um, the harmonic language. Uh, it seems like whatever I do, I always seem to channel Vaughn Williams and uh, Howells, and so I'm very much interested in sort of that uh, almost neo-impressionistic language somewhat uh, tinged by modality, but it's a very special piece to me.
Jeanette Fischel's own composition, own setting of Psalm 139. Uh, You're currently involved uh, in a series of recitals, uh, which, when you finish, will have covered every piece that Johann Sebastian Bach wrote for the organ. First of all, I should ask you how much music there is of that sort, and then why are you doing this? I think at the top of the program you said I was mad about Bach, and I think, well, I'm just mad, actually. I think that's really the statement that's true. We should say that, you know, I'm playing what is what the canon of music that could be considered by Bach. It's always a mystery because, of course, there are pieces that are probably lost to the ages. There are a few new Bach works that have been attributed to him. I played one last year, one of the, the more recent chorale preludes, that Vision um, Leuchtet setting that uh, was only recently attributed to Bach. And I'm even playing a few that we know now aren't by Bach, but they're mm-hmm. ripping good pieces, so I'm going to play them anyway. But when all is said and done, basically roughly 300 pieces that we have by Bach. Now, some of them last 45 seconds, and some of them last 18 minutes. So there's a wide disparity in terms of, of the the length. But I should say that some of those 45-second pieces are some of the hardest pieces I've ever learned. And so with Bach, you know, there's just – there. I always say to my students, there really is no easy Bach. Because even something that technically maybe isn't so challenging, there's always some goal to be mined. And you really have to – dive into the deep end. So why am I doing this? Um, Well, the short story is that I never thought I would do this. You know, there always are organists out there who take this on just like climbing, you know, Mount Everest. But it's really true that projects sometimes choose you. You don't choose them. That's never happened in my life. I'm kind of a control freak. And I always thought, no, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And literally this happened because my first year here on the faculty, I had three or four invitations just out of the blue, bookings through my manager for venues that either wanted all Bach program or mainly Bach. And I've played Bach all my life, but had never been asked to play specifically Aubach. And they were very special gigs. And one of them was very special to me because it was at Harvard on the Flentrop organ that E. Power Biggs had made all of those wonderful Bach recordings and the live broadcasts. And my first organ album I ever bought was E. Power Biggs playing on the Flentrop organ. And it was the 50th anniversary of this organ. And they wanted an all-Bach program. And I thought, this kind of like, you know, Moses in the burning bush. It was like, <laughs> wow, they're asking me to do this. This is really fantastic. And it felt like I'd come full circle. And then I got asked to do this at uh, same thing in Seattle at the Symphony Hall. And I remember driving back from the airport to Bloomington thinking, you know, what's my next big project going to be? And I'd just come back from these Bach recitals. And there was something just so electrifying about the response of the audience to these concerts. It was hard to describe. This was the fall before our wonderful new Fisk, Opus 135, was finished. And they were they were here putting the instrument in. And I was very aware of the fact that as wonderful as Bloomington is and as appreciative as our audiences are and just what a fantastic music community we have – 
we haven't really had uh, a huge amount of a following for the organ. And part of that is we haven't had a, a wonderful instrument of international stature in Bloomington. So I've been very aware of the fact that we need to build an audience for this instrument that's somewhat new to a large segment of the population here. And the music of Bach is, in my mind, where the organ intersects the rest of the musical world. I mean, that's the one composer who we own that everyone else owns. And so I thought that's a great gateway for everyone with this instrument. And the other thing is that as a teacher, which is just a huge part of who I am and what I do, um, every single student I teach from now till the end of my career we will engage the music of Bach on a regular basis. Every single term, we're, we're, we're dealing with Bach. And so of all the composers who I could dive into, this study was going to inform my teaching as well. And it's already just with a year and a half, it's, it's been a wonderful um, augmentation to my skill and knowledge You've, you've done how many? Well, I finished my first year. It's basically a three and a half year cycle. I'm okay. scheduled to end in uh, unless the world comes to an end, as Nostradamus has predicted. Uh, I think I'm scheduled to end in in uh, December of 2013. I think that is. Having done how many concerts? You know, I ha- I think I'm playing 21. 21. Because that's the Golden Bach number, and. Um, he was a great numerologist, and um, so I, I'm starting my second season, and uh, I've done everything I've said to do, was going to do. I think there were five last year, and uh, this year, and the first one I have this year is, um, yeah, is, is August 30th. I'm doing some small concerts this season. I'm calling it Bach at Beck, Beck Chapel, and those are going to be shorter noon times um, in the spring semester. So um, there are going to be some smaller recitals thrown in there. And the other thing that I wanted to do about with this series is I wanted it to be a town gown experience. So that uh, I'm calling it Seasons of Sebastian. And um, the seasons of his life are roughly the, his free works, the preludes, fugues, toccatas, sometimes organized chronologically, sometimes organized around an idea. My concert in August is called Bach Under the Influence. And I'm playing, first of all, a lot of pieces that clearly show French influence and pieces that show clearly show Italian influence. And then the gown, uh, that's the gown part. The town part is uh, the seasons of his faith. And I'm doing those in area churches. And, of course, those are roughly usually just the chorale works, although there's some, some migration. And it's a good way for me to also give back as a faculty member to our community and bring this music to people who maybe won't, you know, for whatever reason, don't come to campus and hear recitals. What's so special about Bach? That's either a very short answer or a very long answer. (laughs) What's so special about Bach? Well, I think he is an undisputed genius, first of all. I mean, just looking at his music intellectually, it's astounding. I I don't understand. Uh, If you look at Musical Offering, for example, which is not a piece I'm playing, but um, Art of Fugue, the intricacy of the counterpoint. I, To me, it's like a cathedral in sound. It's like going into uh, a great Gothic cathedral as an architect and figuring out how did they make this work in the 12th century? How in the world did they – how did they build the pyramids in ancient Egypt? So he was a great musical architect. What to me makes him so special and what – is that – that counterpoint is infused with, first of all, musical ingenuity, um, personality. There's so much humor in Bach. I think I'm discovering so many things I never heard before. 
it's real. It's really viscerally exciting music. There's flesh and blood in this music. And there's great faith in this music. Um, Soli Deo Gloria. Everything was for the glory of God for Bach. And it's it's a sentiment that I connect with. And regardless of your religious beliefs or lack thereof, I think there's a sense of being in touch with the numinous in this music that cuts across any kind of religious divide we might have as people in the 21st century. To me, it's bigger than that. It's it's And it's really music that's worth the time. I keep going back to the fact that we're surrounded by music all the time. We're surrounded by stimulation all the time. And sometimes I just think, you know, most of it is just not worth our energy. I carry around earplugs with me, mm-hmm. and I often will walk around with them because I feel like I want my ears to hear what, you know, music that really matters. And um, I'd want to block out the, the noise. I also think that we live in a very chaotic time. And the when has it not been chaotic in, on this earth, I think. But when people are in high stress, I think that's when it, it – sometimes we yearn for something that just makes sense. And I think Bach's music makes sense on a musical level, spiritual level, and just an artistic level. Well, let's listen to some. Great. You have the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Uh, we can't play all of it probably. Right. But I think you want to choose the Well, I think you can what? start with the Toccata because I okay. think that everyone – that's probably the one piece of Bach that, uh, that everybody everyone knows. loves and everyone okay. knows for good reason. And you play this where? This is a live recording from my January eleventh, uh, 2011 recital on the wonderful Fisk in our hall. just heard our guest, Jeanette Fischel, play the Toccata in D minor of Johann Sebastian Bach on the Fisk organ in Indiana University's uh, Our Hall. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Uh, talk to me a little about that organ because it has been a very important addition oh, to yes. the area and to the university and to the school. Well, it's been a great blessing. And first of all, I need to say that I reaped the benefit of 
all the wonderful uh, work that was done uh, previous to my coming to IU. So I feel like I'm the I'm the Johnny come lately. I'm just enjoying the great benefit. Um, I have to thank so many people. Chris Young, my colleague in the School of Music, has really seen this project through. But my predecessors, Marilyn Kaiser, Chancellor's Professor, retired, and Larry Smith, they really provided a lot of vision for this instrument, as did, of course, Charles Webb, who is a national treasure, and Gwen Richards, our present dean, um, and, of course, the wonderful Seward family. Mady, I didn't get to meet Mady. She died right before we dedicated the organ. I know John and Lorna, of course, but the gifts that the Seward family gave that made this instrument possible. It really shows what the the public-private partnership is all about, bringing an instrument of this quality. Well, the C.B. Fisk firm is one of the finest um, organ-building firms in the world, not just in this nation. And um, Charles Fisk was um, a physicist who actually, early in his career, uh, was a very junior uh, colleague on the Manhattan Project. He made a decision very early in his life that he wanted to make art, not bombs, Mm -hmm. and changed his course to uh, that of the ancient art of organ building. And he was a very visionary person in this country for looking both forward and backward. I mean, the best organ building is really built upon principles um, that are ancient um, and certainly that date back to the Renaissance. But with modern technology, so many improvements and and um, can be made upon that ancient art. What we have with this wonderful Fisk organ, the Seward Memorial Organ, is an instrument that's quite large, 70 stops, a complete three-manual organ, meaning three keyboards and full pedal board, that's basically a three-story instrument. When you go into our hall, it's, it's, it goes all the way to the ceiling. And um, we have an instrument that I think achieves a subtle yet profoundly powerful uh, array of sounds. It's perfectly voiced for the room. Um, even at its full throttle, it's never so much that you get sort of distortion in your eardrums, but you definitely can feel it uh, in oh, your very yes. bones. <laughs> um, but it also has a beautiful sense of of mystery and um, the the most the most quiet stops just whisper and you can also hear the diction of the pipes. So as an organist, first of all, it's wonderful because you can really play a wide array of array of music on it. You can play everything from medieval music to music that's not written yet. As a teaching instrument, it's invaluable because the students are really experiencing an instrument of quality that puts them through their paces. I would say it's not an easy instrument to play from the technical standpoint because it does have a certain amount of weight behind the keys. And the students really find out pretty quickly if they don't have enough finger strength and they know how to build it. I'm I'm very fond of saying that every organ student has two teachers. The teacher that they're seeing every week, of course, the, the human teacher, and then the instrument. And you really can't develop into a master of the craft without having both. These days, um, there's so much exciting organ building going on in the States that for Indiana University to stay competitive, and in fact, to maintain our leadership position, we have to have that other instrumental teacher here. And the Seward organ is certainly a wonderful, wonderful step in that direction. 
And beyond that, it's a wonderful collaborative instrument. It accompanies well. Uh, if you've heard m- m- so many of the uh, programs we've done with the choral department, um, it accompanies well. So our students are not only learning to be soloists, they're learning all the art of service playing and accompanying so that we're preparing them for the real future that lies in front of them as church musicians. How many students do you have? We have uh, a very robust enrollment. We believe, uh, this is not a statistic I've done a lot of research on, but we believe that we are the largest department in the country. This fall, we have 36 majors in residence, and we estimate probably about another 10 to 15 in process doctoral students who are out and about. So we have about 50, uh, which is... um, as many as we can handle. <laughs> do you have some other practice instruments? Oh, yes, them? we do. We have uh, we have some instruments. Um, we have um, instruments in the music annex um, that are practice instruments. And then we have two instruments on the fourth floor that are formerly our performance instruments, but larger studio organs. Um, we have the, uh, a lot of students practice at their churches, but we, we haven't, we have enough for now. Um, the quality of those instruments is, is varies and some of them were, were not great even when I was a student here. So we definitely have, um, sort of a 10 year plan that we hope we can implement to continue to expand and improve our holdings. But yes, the organs pretty much go, um, 18 hours a day over there. Now, I- there are two organists in your family. Yes. Your husband is a prominent organist, too. Yes. Uh, and he works in Columbus, Indiana. He does. Uh, at the First Presbyterian First Church. First Presbyterian Church. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of organ music that uh, you engage in together, I would guess. We do, actually. Colin Andrews is my husband. And when we met, and married. I'd never played an organ duet. He'd never played an organ duet, but we thought, well, if we're going to be living together the rest of our lives, you know, perhaps we should look at that. Maybe we should look and see how we can start to make music together. And um, there are some duets published. Actually, the British were the so-called innovators of the organ duet way back in the 16th century. Probably had something to do with the fact that the English organ was always relatively small and a way to expand its powers was probably to have two players at it. But you brought something, which I gather is the two of you at one organ. It is the two of us. And it's a transcription of the ballet scene from Samson and Delilah. So talk to me about that. (laughs) Well, um, this is a great... I find that in uh, the transcriptions I've done, dances work very well on the organ. There's, There's something about the rhythmic energy of the dances. So a, a lot of the pieces I've transcribed tend to be more uh, rhythmically active pieces. And uh, this is just one of my favorite transcriptions I've done. So this is the Bacchanal? This is the Bacchanal played okay. on the organ of St. Mary Radcliffe, which is a Harrison and Harrison organ, one of the great English romantic organs. And uh, Colin grew up in this church and had his first organ lessons there and just has some of those beautiful solo reads on the organ.
Cezanne's Bacchanal from the opera Samson and Delilah, as played by the husband-wife team of Colin Andrews and Jeanette Fischel. What is your school's philosophy about training young organists? Uh, what do they need to know? Uh, how must they be prepared to do what they must do as professionals? Uh, where will they go? These must be very important issues for you. They're huge issues for us. I, I can speak for the department on this because we've given a lot of thought to this. I think from the time I was a student here, I had a wonderful education here. It really did prepare me for the career I've had in many ways. But our students now, I think, are charged with even having to do more. It's the job climate ha is challenging. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there about church music and the role of so-called traditional music in the church. There are a lot of people who, who for years, for 20 years, have predicted the end of classical music, the end of traditional music in churches. It's just not true. Do we live in a more pluralistic society now? Of course. Are there churches that have gone different directions? Of course. But we continue to place our students and our students continue to find jobs. It's a, rarely a week that goes by when I'm not contacted by clergy or a search committee looking for a student who's the total package. And so our students often now have to be trained to do more than I think that we were in the late 70s and early 80s, and I'll flesh that out in a minute. But the jobs are there for those who are prepared. So I think the, the, the philosophy we have is that you know, in some ways it hasn't changed from the time I was a student or even long before that. First of all, we're, we're charged with teaching our students to be the most the best educated, the most um, technically proficient, stylistically aware, um, exciting and expressive musicians they can be, getting them on that path wherever they are, producing a healthy technique so that they don't have performance injuries and they can make music the rest of their lives. Uh, of course, my wonderful colleagues in the School of Music, theories, theorists, uh, historians, other applied faculty, they're all it's all parts of that puzzle. They're getting wonderful choral experiences. They're getting fantastic early music experiences, the history and theory faculty, et cetera. So, you know, it's uh, we expect our students to be well-educated musicians. What I think has been uh, a bit of a change, not so much a change, but an increase in, in weight, is that that our students really are aware that the job market is in church music for most of them. The jobs in higher education for organists are very few and far between. They're still there, and we need to continue to teach our students to be wonderful teachers, because whether they're teaching in a private school or um, university or community college or their church, they all need to be teachers, and it's something that we all really bring home to them. The future of the instrument depends on best musicians becoming teachers and developing that. Most of us, most of us, if you think about it in the organ, are the people who inspired us to be organists were probably not university professors. I was 17 before I met a university professor in organ. I was inspired by many other kinds of people, including church organists. So um, 
that's one thing we need to develop. They all need to be teachers. And uh, how do you do that? Well, you know, for me, my studio class, my weekly studio class is really a time, and that's where I learned to be a teacher, observing my teacher teach, and then occasionally she would ask the students to teach. So they do have to take a a class in pedagogy, but it's really, um, it's teaching them the how and the why. So I'm not just teaching you to play this piece. I'm teaching you a concept, and we're exploring some things together so that you can then preserve that. Because I really do believe that one of my favorite quotes in life is from the founder of the Sierra Club, and it's, we preserve what we love, we love what we know, and we know what we're taught. And I feel like my part of that chain is always I'm teaching them because I want them to know this and love this because that's how future generations will know and love it. In the current job climate, you know, in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s, there were more jobs just for organists, full-time jobs in large parishes, cathedrals, for just organists. There are fewer of those jobs now. And most of our students will be full-time employees doing choral work as well as organs. So I think that's the major shift that we're really looking at producing. Every student needs to have a sense of competency. Some of them will be just fantastic choral conductors. Some of them will be a little bit reluctant choral conductors, but the point is that they all have as much flexibility as possible. So if that's the direction they want to go, they can go. Now, the other part of that is we really live in the age of the entrepreneur, and I we really have to also teach our students about just living creatively in society. I mean, I look back and think, how I was successful and how what led me here, I don't know who taught it. Probably a lot of different people taught me by just showing me that um, it goes back to, you know, you're probably not going to land in a perfect place. And you have to work in a job to make that job a job you want to keep, even if you do leave it. And uh, I just try to model that for my students and share with them how I, I've done that in various jobs that um, – weren't jobs that were maybe perfect, but I, you know, you have to, when you get a job like that, you realize very early on, you either work full-time to get out of it and get a new job, or you work full-time to make it the job you want to keep. Either way, you work. And, and so the students, I think, have to learn early on, they're not going to enter a society that's going to just say, come on in, and we're going to pay you a huge salary to be an organist. And by the way, you'll have a packed house for every organ recital you ever do. And can we buy you a $2 million organ? They're going to have to work to develop usually a base of support, which can take 10 years. And they're going to have to work to educate a population that maybe doesn't really know so much about what they do. And they're going to have to go out there and get children in their children's choir. And they're going to have to learn how to talk to parents and committees. They're going to have to sell their program on every single level um, by saying, not only is this children's choir a good thing for your child to do because they're giving back to the church, but by the way, probably their test scores will go up because it's proven that children who are involved in music improve in other ways. So, you know, when I was a student, none of this was part of it. I mean, I was just following my star and I was I was com- completely obsessed with doing what I did musically and and learning learning what I had to learn at the school of music. But now our students really do have the extra layer of of having to realize pretty early on that they need to be really kind of good at a lot of different things. In 50 words or less, what does the organ mean to you? The organ is me. <laughs> I, don't, I can't almost make a distinction between the instrument and who I am because 
I've loved it. It's meant so much to me. It is the vehicle, my major vehicle for expression. It is the way I communicate with my students and with an audience. And it's been my lifelong companion, um, my teacher, and my comfort. Thank you, Jeanette Fischel. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest. Jeanette Fischel, head of the organ department in the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University. And this is Peter Jacoby for Profiles. Thank you, Peter. The program you just heard was recorded in August of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.